Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. morning. How are y'all doing? So how many of you remember Magic Eye? Exactly, exactly. So basically, basically there's supposed to be some sort of 3D shape on top inside of a 2D image. Let me give you one for reference. Now you remember, now you remember. So technically these things are supposed to be called an auto stereogram. I tend to connect more with words like frustrating, impossible, totally made up. Um, Do you see what's going on? All I see is color and wavy lines. Anybody see it? Nobody? See, they are made up. I told you. I told you. Okay, this is what you're supposed to see. Oh, yeah, like you totally saw it. You do not. You do not. Okay, this one's supposed to be easier, I'm told. Again, I can't see these things. Do you see it? Yes? What is it? What is it? Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, so if you don't see it, let's, let's go ahead and see what the reference is. It's a shark. It's a shark, right? So for a few years in the 90s, Magic Eye, which are these images right here, um, kind of took the world by storm. They, we, they sold millions of, of books, of posters. They found their way into all sorts of major advertisements. And decades before the internet would famously ask, is this dress white and gold or is it blue and black? Everybody's asking, well, do you see it? You see it? You see it? What is it? No, what? Squint your eyes, cross it. You're supposed to blur them a little bit. Like, you're supposed to kind of do this. And then you would see people do this sort of thing um, where they would, like, hold it up to their face and kind of squint and supposed to cross your eyes. I still convinced it's all made up. But, but, regardless, if you said, yes, 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 I can see this. And we did this in the office this week. And we had some people that were really successful and I don't know how they did it. Um, but, um, they would always ask a follow-up question. And they'll say, well, well, okay, if you saw it, what is it that you see, right? What is it that you see? This is the part that always fascinated me because those in the know can always test those who say they see something to see if they see the same thing, right? So what I did is I looked in the back of the book, right? So in the back of the book, there's an answer key that says, I can see where you're at and I can track along. I didn't know any better. I couldn't see the thing. But the answer key meant I didn't have to. Regardless of the fact that I lacked the skill or understanding to participate in the same way that others did, I could know exactly what the artist intended. Because they told me. And so from what I've been told, from those of you who can actually see these sorts of things, some are easier to pick out than others. But some are a little more complicated. And some, you may think you see one thing, but then you see something entirely different. 
And so while you may experience the art in a way that I can't, we both really need the answer key to know exactly what the artist intended for us to recognize. This is where we find ourselves in 2 Peter this week. The folks who first received this letter were believers who found themselves amidst a culture that were at odds with things they had heard, they'd understood, and they believed about following Jesus. As it happens so often when people share information with one another, what was received wasn't always the same thing as what was said. And so this led people to experience a lot of things. It was anxiety and fear and pain and suffering and confusion. I mean, Jesus had promised to come back decades before and after this much time, some people began to doubt whether or not he ever would. I mean, the truth is, when you're on the waiting end of a promise, no matter how long it's been, with each passing day that you don't see that fulfillment, the stress that comes in waiting seems to increase exponentially, right? Have any of you ever felt like you have been on the waiting end of God's promises? Yeah. You hear people say, like, well, God did this thing in their life, or maybe those same people are saying to you, well, God's going to come through for you. But it hasn't happened yet, right? You want to believe that God's promises are true, but you don't necessarily feel like they're going to happen anytime soon. Second Peter is for you. Walking through this first chapter in the last few weeks, we've talked about how God has given us these promises. By his grace, we have everything we need to live righteously. And we can trust the authority of this letter because we're not following cleverly devised myths or tales we're walking in the footsteps of eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. Peter has seen the fulfillment of prophecy. He has seen and experienced the fulfillment of, fulfillment of God's promises in the person of Jesus. When it comes to understanding scripture and following Jesus, the apostles are the one who made the answer key. We don't have to squint our eyes to try and see past some 2D image to see the shape of the truth. They're laying it out plainly. So we should listen. Let's pick up in verse 20 of chapter 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets or false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. There are a couple things to note here. First, we have to understand that attributing divine origin to anything in the first century is equivalent to claiming it was truthful, it was primary, it was reliable. So naturally, anything that came of human origin would be secondary. It's inferior. It's, it's unreliable. In other words, that which is divine is true beyond question or bias. And that which is human, conversely, is something that's motivated by someone's own pleasure. It's arbitrary. 
to make a somewhat crude analogy, to claim something as divine in the first century is, is a lot like parents telling their kids, because I said so. Um, because whatever the kids try and argue after that doesn't really matter. The foot's down. There's no, but, 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 but. Whoa. <laughs> Secondly, what we're, rece- what we're reading in verses 20 and 21 is a, is a calculated response to a contingent of folks who we're going to be addressing here in a bit. These are people that are capitalizing upon the doubt of others within the church. They are subverting the message of the gospel by offering an alternate narrative that undermines the righteousness to which Christians are called. As is the thrust of their message, they're motivated by what best serves themselves. In plainer language, they're ignoring the gospel to focus on what makes them feel good. Anybody here ever guilty of that? So today, I want to spend some time focusing on these two things. One, what is it that Peter is saying about Scripture in verses 20 and 21? And two, his warning about the people to whom he is addressing this response in verses 1 through 3. Looking through both of these is going to help us tackle a much, much bigger issue. How do we understand and hold fast to what is true when we're surrounded by others who are quick to distort it? Before we go any further, I want to pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of who you are. Thank you for your consistency throughout history. Thank you that you are the same God that Isaac and Jacob, um, that Abraham called upon, that David called upon, that Mary called upon. You're the same God that we call upon here and now. Your word is faithful, it is true, and everything we have is as you have intended for us to receive it. Jesus, we ask that we receive your word here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So my son, um, he likes to pride himself on being sneaky. That's not sneaky, sorry. He likes to pride himself on being sneaky. And the reality is, he's not. He's six. So anything that he thinks is sneaky is really painfully obvious. He likes to go and like he's going to tickle you and he kind of walks like this. You're like, Lincoln, I know what's going on. Son, come on. But in this passage, there is temptation for us that, unlike my son, is just sneaky enough to get past us. Because whenever we read portions of scripture with which we readily agree, I think it's easy to kind of take it in and move forward without really sitting in it and understanding the implications. After all, what are these verses saying? Let's go back to verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the message is clear. Prophecy in Scripture comes from God, and what's more, neither its source nor its interpretation are of human origin. God is the source of all prophecy, and his Holy Spirit provides the interpretation. We can trust what the Bible says because it comes from God himself. It's not a product of human agenda. It's not myth. It's not the result of data collection and research and analysis. It's not a puff piece. God didn't just speak to the prophets and let them figure it out for themselves. He spoke to them, and he spoke through them. 
What we have in Scripture is a record of what God had for them and now has for us. I was really encouraged uh, last week and in the last couple weeks when we kind of saw the results of our church survey on what we believe about God and the Bible and learned that this is something that our church readily agrees on. Scripture is holy and we believe that it comes from God. If we didn't agree on this, I'd need a lot longer to preach today. But here's the problem. If we don't know what Scripture says, what good is it for us to believe that it's true and that it comes from God? Let me me say that again. If we don't know what Scripture says, how is it beneficial for us and to those around us if we believe that it's true and comes from God? Think about it like this. Most information that we have today available to us comes via the internet, right? And as someone that sociologists likes to call a geriatric millennial, that's a whole real term. It just means I was born between 1981 and 1985. But it is a thing, look it up, I know, it's weird. As a geriatric millennial, I remember the early days of the internet. I grew up in the early days of the internet in which everybody was skeptical and nobody believed anything that was said. Like online shopping was scary, people didn't want to do it because they weren't sure if stuff was going to show up at their house, right? As high school, college students, we were expressly forbidden from using the internet for sources regarding any real research because the consensus was that internet knowledge was mostly made up. It didn't have any authority, yet somehow, some way, a little over three decades later, that mindset has shifted so much for so many that whatever we read on Facebook, whatever we read on Twitter, whatever we read on news sites is afforded the same kind of authority and credibility that we've long given to journalists on television and newspapers. It's really bizarre, right? But I'm not just talking about news here. People will post a quote about God, or they'll say something scripture-ish, right? And they'll treat it with the same kind of authority that we ascribe to God's word. You've seen this, right? Somebody will post... God will never give you more than you can handle. And you think, man, that's so good. That's so good. Like, God, God wants to protect us. He's looking out for us. Man, like, praise Jesus. Like, why doesn't the worship team sing more songs about this, right? Because it's not in Scripture. The Bible does not say this. And the problem is, If you don't know scripture, you may have liked, you may have even shared that same post because you believe the truth of God's word and you want others to know, but you don't realize you're inadvertently spreading false teaching. Do you know what the Bible does say? It says, in this world there will be trouble, tribulation. Yeah, yeah. That sounds way less encouraging to me. (laughs) Way less. (laughs) I mean, how many of you have experienced trouble in this life? Yeah, yeah, right, right. I know I have. I've spent, I, I have spent nights awake, tossing and turning, trying to pray away crippling anxiety and feeling like I wasn't faithful enough in my prayers because it didn't happen right away. 
But this verse that I just mentioned tells a much better truth than God will never give you more than you can handle. Because it says, in this world there will be trouble, there will be tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. When things get hard, and I mean really, really, really hard, I want to hold on to the truth that comes from God and not the truth that comes from people, right? (sighs) Yay, personal stuff. Uh, Nearly four years ago, um, I found myself going through a divorce that I didn't want. And it broke my family, and it broke my heart, and it broke my spirit. And I questioned whether or not I was fit to be a husband or a father. I wondered how God would ever use somebody like me to be a pastor and lead others towards him when I felt like I was a complete and utter failure in my own home and to the people that mattered most to me. (laughs) If I were truly to believe that God would never give me more than I can handle, was I to conclude that what God said wasn't true? But God didn't say that. People did. And even though I know God said in this world there will be trouble, I still struggled with thoughts like, maybe I'm the problem here. Maybe God expected too much of me. Maybe I just wasn't good enough. I wasn't fit to lead, be that at church or even for my own family. And I had all these thoughts over and over and over again. But I also had friends who encouraged me with God's actual word. They prayed scripture over me. And they said, in this world there will be trouble. But take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world and so too will he overcome the doubts and the fears that you are facing. And you know what? He did. And it didn't happen overnight. But the truth, the truth of God's word gave me peace. In the meantime, I could rest in the fact that God who made the universe was holding me. And he wasn't done with me yet. And he's not done with you either. He's not. We're also not done with the passage. So do me a favor. Let's take a deep breath. We're going to stretch. Not like in your neighbor's face. Remember how we talked about these verses as a response to a group of people who were undermining the gospel and subverting its message? Now that we've addressed the source of scripture and why we know it's true, we need to understand the folks who are denying that, and how we might be able to recognize them. Let's pick back up in verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you 
with false words. Isn't it just like 2022 for somebody to come and mess up what was already a good thing? There's a lot here. And if you read ahead in verses 4 through 10, you're going to see that God will judge those who pervert the gospel. Just as he judged the ungodly and rescued the righteous in the past. There's hope to be had for those who call Jesus Lord and judgment for those who don't. If you are new to church, you never, ever heard the gospel before. I want to be clear. Judgment is real. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin are death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I can say that judgment is real, but so too is the love, the grace, and the forgiveness that Jesus provides as he offers us hope, redemption, and freedom for everybody who submits to his rule and his way. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. There is hope to be had in Jesus. He loves you. He will gladly take away your burden if you get to him. But here's where I want to draw your attention right now. After Peter shared with us that prophecy came from God, he reminds us that alongside those real prophets arose among the people false prophets who came with their own agenda. False prophets who saw a potential platform and jumped on. But this brief look back is really only meant to seize our attention for what follows. Look at verse 1. It says, just as there will be false teachers among you. This isn't a group of outsiders who are trying to attack the church and its mission. These are people among us. What's really interesting is that every translation I looked into, and I'm talking about 20 plus a bunch, they all phrased it exactly the same way. These false teachers aren't on the outside looking in. They're among you. They're here. They're among your family. They're among your friends. They're in your life group. And yes, I very much recognize this is one of those situations in which you could turn to your neighbor and ask, is it you? Like, is it you? (laughs) Or dare I say, you ask yourself, is it me? Because I believe the kind of false teachers that Peter's addressing here aren't the kind that ever intend on becoming that. I don't think any one of you started following Jesus so you could become a false teacher. But if we don't take seriously and discipline ourselves to understand the truth of God's word, any one of us could easily become what Peter's warning us about. And I know the temptation here is to say, not me. I love Jesus. I'm committed to following him. Dustin's probably talking about that one family or that one couple in our life group that's really socially awkward. Or maybe he's talking about that family that's always late to church and comes in in the third song. Or maybe he's talking about the one who lets their kids run through the worship center after service. Those are mine. Let me be clear. I'm talking to you. All of you. I am talking to my fellow pastors. I am talking to me. This isn't a word for some. It's a word for everybody. 
So, turn to your neighbor and say, that means you. You can go ahead. That means you. That means you. I'm looking at you, Justin. Patrick. <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. One more time. Who is this word for? Everybody. How many of you have ever experienced temptation? Keep your hands up. How many of you have ever followed through with it and did what you knew you weren't supposed to do? Don't lie, you're in church. (laughs) Then you too are in danger of falling into the path of these false teachers. Many will follow means we are all targets here. We all get off track sometimes. We all have a tendency to buy into things that look and sound like Jesus, but are really just distorted versions of the truth. That's what makes the offerings of the false teachers so compelling. They're offering the rewards that come with Jesus without the cost of following him. They're suggesting that you can have Jesus forgive all of your sin and do whatever you want. You get to have Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to make him your Lord. Jesus is judgment-free, right? How dare anybody at church ever say, you have to do this, or you have to do that, or you can't do this, or you can't do that? Jesus loves everybody. The real problem is judgmental Christians. Don't fall into their trap. They're cold. They're harsh. That's not like Jesus. You can have Jesus and live however you want. After all, your relationship with Jesus is personal. So who is anybody to tell you how to follow him? Any of you heard stuff like this before? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't seem too far off, does it? But it's false teaching. That's the problem. That's why Peter's warning us. Let's look at verse 3 again. It says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. He knows He knows that they're going to exploit us. He knows many of us will follow. And why? Because we don't always know the real truth from that which looks and sounds like it. We love and we appreciate the word of God, but we can't always separate it from the feel-good theology we find online. We want to love our friends because Jesus loves us, so we buy into the idea that we can ignore the uncomfortable parts of Scripture in the name of loving our neighbor. We'll hear something that has a ring of truth to it, and we'll miss the part that undermines that. We can recognize the part that's true, and we gloss over the rest because we want it to be true. I mean, it looks good. feels good. It should be true. It must be. You don't buy into these things because you want to follow a false teacher. My head. All right. You don't buy into these things because you want to follow a false teacher. You buy in because their teaching feels right. You want it to be right. That's where they get you. What seems like truth is really counterfeit. And you're left having exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Healthy Christians don't follow in the path of destruction because they desire to live apart from God's rule and way. They do so because of ignorance. They don't know real from counterfeit. So I have a confession for y'all. I have a thing for sneakers. 
It started when I was 11 years old. I was in a Dillard's department store with my mom. Um, I was supposed to be helping her, like, arrange shirts or something in some rack. But I got distracted. I saw a pair of Jordans, and I fell in love. And in particular, these, these right here. Yeah, these are Jordan 11s. These are the ones that Michael Jordan used to save the Looney Tunes from the Monstars. <laughs> All right? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. All right? These are the shoes he wore when he came back into the NBA after that brief stint in baseball. Right? This specific colorway. So when this colorway never actually released because the NBA... NBA told him he wasn't allowed to wear them because there were some sort of rules against shoe colors and uniforms matching. Don't know why. Doesn't exist anymore, and I'm super happy about it. Anyway, when these came out in 2018, this was the first time they released to the general public, the sneaker world went crazy because they said, oh my goodness, I have one of these since I was a child, and every 30-something-year-old like me was like, I have to have them. And so now, this shoe in smaller sizes is selling on the second-hand market online for $1,800 plus right now. Disclaimer, mine are not worth that much. I've worn them. I paid retail. This is <laughs> way, 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 way different. But when a shoe or any product is sought after and found in limited supply, what do you think happened? People made fakes. They made counterfeits. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of them. And really, they're everywhere in the sneaker community. I mean, tens of millions of dollars are made every year by selling counterfeit sneakers. And while there are a lot of, a lot of fakes out there that are really easy to spot, the really good ones are tough to separate from the real thing. For example, the shoe right here, it has a 45 on the back. Now, if everything about this shoe were exactly the same, but it had a 23 instead of a 45, they'd be fake. They'd be worth nothing. And for most people, you'd think, well, 23 is the number that Michael Jordan made famous. Of course it should be a 23. And you'd miss the fact that he wore 45 when he came back into the league because somebody on his team already had 23. But the detail matters, right? Because if you have a pair that have 23 on it, what you have are fakes. That's why they're authenticators in the sneaker community. And I know that sounds weird, but yes, there are people whose full-time job it is to make sure that sneakers are legitimate because nobody wants to spend a lot of money on something that they think is real, only to discover that it's fake. Watching these authenticators work is really fascinating to me. They, they examine the box, they kind of look, they look at the label, they, like, they put a, a UV light on the label to check things. They go in and they pull out the shoes and, and they like, this is super weird, right? But they sniff them. They're not worn yet, but they sniff them because the glue is supposed to smell a certain way. They look at the stitching they look at the outsole, they look at the midsole, they look at the laces, they look at the letters, they look at the numbers. 
and they pay close attention to all the details because the details matter. There's no such thing as shoes that are mostly authentic. They're either real or they're not. And the truth of God is no different. Church, there are people among you that are communicating something that sounds like truth but somehow gets distorted in the details. If you're not familiar with the details, you're probably going to accept it without a second thought. And you'll be carrying and passing on false teaching because you don't know the difference between what's real and what's fake. You'll be walking in the light of Jesus one day and proclaiming the false truth of the world the next. For a people who want to love and live like Jesus, that's really scary. Fortunately, there are some ways in which we can be on guard. We can't avoid false teachers, but we can recognize and reject their teaching when we encounter it. While you may never care to sniff a pair of sneakers, we should all be authenticators when it comes to the truth of God's word. Here's how you do it. First, immerse yourself in scripture. Saturate your heart with the truth of God's word. Believing it's true and God-breathed is only beneficial and life-giving when you know what it says. When you know what it says, it's easy to distinguish between what's from God and what isn't. Hold fast to what is. Look at it. Smell it. Familiarize yourself with the details. Internalize it. Consider picking out a plan. We have them available on our website. There are longer plans, there are shorter plans. There are tons of resources online. When you know what God's word says, you're going to have a distinct understanding of what it doesn't say, and you'll know it when you see it. You'll be equipped to separate truth from distortion. Second, surround yourself with people who do the same. It is easy to get out of a rhythm. Ask the gym in February. It's hard to get back into it. But when we surround ourselves with people who know the truth and speak it to us readily, we'll find that rediscovering that rhythm is a lot more accessible than it would be on our own. God gave us his word to keep us honest, but he gave us community to keep us accountable. And while accountability can seem like a scary word sometimes, I think in cases like this, it may just mean picking a scripture reading plan with a friend and holding one another to it. Faithful followers of Christ are there to encourage and equip you. When you're surrounded by people who know the truth, it's a lot easier to point out what isn't. Last, submit yourself to the rule and way of Jesus and only Jesus. In Luke 9.23, Jesus tells us exactly what this looked like. He says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. We don't get to be our own boss. We don't get to make our own rules. When we follow Jesus, we're giving up our autonomy. We don't get to choose to follow what feels right to us. 
we don't get to pick the parts of the Bible we like and ignore the parts we don't. But it also means we get to exchange our yoke for his. We exchange the burden of sin for the freedom he offers. Let's bring up this, that, that last slide, Marshall, if you don't mind. Again, immerse yourselves in scripture. Surround yourself with people who do the same and submit yourself to the rule and way of Jesus and only Jesus. Church, I care about you. I want you to know the truth. And as a pastor, I am called to be a shepherd. I am called to protect. I am called to be on guard. I am called to know what dangers exist spiritually and to lead you away from them and towards Jesus himself. And while I may not stand on this platform in this capacity very often, I'm up here a lot. And my goal, week in, week out, is to point you to Jesus. It's to help lead you into his presence so that we can experience his goodness and his grace together. And, and my hope and prayer is that your experience with Jesus doesn't ever stop there, that it, the joy you experience with Jesus on Sunday mornings spills into your home and into your neighborhoods, to your workplace, to your schools. I want you to cherish the rule and the way of Jesus because you recognize that without him, nothing else matters. He alone is the source of our hope. And there is no substitute. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We know that you are good. We know that you are faithful. God, we thank you that you have given us a word that is true, that is consistent, and like you, doesn't change. God, we thank you that you have surrounded us with people who are called to the same purpose. God, that we're not alone. God, that you have promised us your Holy Spirit and your Holy Spirit is with us always, but God, that we have a community of faith right here God, we have people that want to do the same thing we do. God, that are there to encourage, that are there to equip us, that are there to hold us to the discipline and the patterns we need when it's so easy for us to fall out. God, we thank you for your rule, for your way. God, you say that we're to take our yoke upon you because your burden is easy light and so today God I just ask that wherever we're at today God you, you show us those areas in which maybe we have allowed the truth of the world to creep in and subtly replace the truth that belongs to you and you alone God, allow us to be receptive as maybe we can call that out in one another. Show us who you are so that anything that isn't is easy to spot. It's easy to call out. Jesus, you are the reward that we seek. 
knowing you is it. That's why we exist. It's why we're here. We love you. Be glorified in all that we do here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue to worship.